We'll read this morning, beginning at verse 10, and we'll look at verses 14 through 18. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we pray that You would open to us these words in Your Holy Scriptures that You've given to us by Your Spirit, that we would see Christ and get a glimpse of His glory. That you would transform us as we look into the mirror of your word. And that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever seen the glory of God? You might think that's kind of an interesting question to start off a sermon. Uh, but uh, in Exodus 33, remember Lo- uh, Moses prayed to the living God, show me your glory. And God was kind and gracious enough to let Moses get a glimpse of his back, as it were, and get a very small glimpse of his glory as he passed by, having put Moses in the cleft of the rock. And in some sense, all men get a glimpse of the glory of God every day that they breathe and have existence on this earth. Because the Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's very creation speaks to us of God's existence and His glorious existence indeed. And uh, in the days of His flesh on this earth, our Lord Jesus Christ took two of His disciples to uh, the mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration, where He revealed a little bit of His glory to His disciples. But uh, as the Apostle Paul notes in 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18, he put it like this. He says, but we all, with unveiled face, different than Moses, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of our Lord. And so he's talking about our sanctification, growing in our holiness to the Lord. And he says, we with unveiled face look into the mirror. I think he's talking about the word of God. We behold the glory of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And as we do so, we are transformed from glory unto glory unto glory. And I think similarly, uh, John here in his prologue is preparing us 
for the events that he has recorded by the Holy Spirit, his inspiration. He's preparing us for the events that we will read about in this account of the gospel. Remember, we are coming to the end of John's prologue, this introduction of his account of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and burial, and ascension on high. And so I think it's John's purpose here for us to understand that this is about the glory of God, the glorious Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, verse 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And notice what he said, we beheld His glory. And so the disciples, John himself included, they saw Jesus, this Word who became flesh, they beheld His glory. And so in other words, if you today have seen Jesus on the pages of Scripture for who He actually is, you've gotten a glimpse of God's glory. And so John here tells us how, I think, this glory was revealed. In three different ways, this glory has been revealed. And so that's what we'll consider this morning. I'll just put it in the form of a question. How has this Word's glory been revealed? Remember the Word. The Word that became flesh. The second person of the Godhead, as we have seen already in John's prologue. Well, first of all, this glory, or the glory of this Word has been revealed through His incarnation. You know, the incarnation, that word means in flesh. The second person of the Godhead took upon Himself human flesh. Again, in verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh. If you look back at verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and in the original it says, this God was the Word. Emphasis there is the deity of this Word. And so in verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh. He took upon Himself human flesh. That's what it's talking about, a human body. He had a nature like ours without sin, Hebrews 4 makes clear. And so through His incarnation. Now some men did not fully see or acknowledge this glory. Isaiah talked about that, right? In Isaiah chapter 53, it says he was rejected among men. John has already said he came into his own, the Jewish people, his own received him not. But the disciples beheld his glory. And as we think about this incarnation, just remember that in the post-apostolic church, after the apostles, it took hundreds of years for Christians really to, to get a grasp to articulate how the Word became flesh and what that means. I'm referring to all those church councils which can and have aired, but uh, you can think of Chalcedon, Nicaea, Chalcedon 451, Nicaea 325, there's Council of Ephesus even, and they were trying to figure out, okay, how did the Word take upon human flesh and what does that mean? Did He combine and was he kind of you know, just mixed together? Well, no, without composition, we say. And that gets off into a whole theological discussion. But John just simply says he took upon flesh the sarks in the original. He didn't cease being the Word. 
He continued to be the Word. But the second person of the Godhead, as I've said, took upon human flesh, a real human body with a real human soul. This, again, was the testimony of Scripture even before Jesus came to earth. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says that the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. So it's a miraculous birth. She will bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so here is the arrival of Jesus. And the Gospels tell us about this. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And she became pregnant. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her. She was a virgin. But Joseph was mindful to put her away. And so God knowing what's going on with Joseph, he sends his angels and they tell him this. They said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to Mary or take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so it's talking about the virgin birth and why he came. To save his people from their sins. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Keep your finger there in John and turn to the right uh, to Philippians chapter 2. If you've ever read or studied, read about Philippians chapter 2, this passage on the Incarnation, you will know it is of great theological weight. There's been much written about it in the church over uh, millennia. And uh, at the same time, Paul gave this under the inspiration of the Spirit. It was a hymn. And the reason he gave it, by the way, was because there was a cat fight at Philippi between two women. And uh, his point was humility. Have this same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 says, verse 6, who being in the form of God, what that means is he was God. That's an argument for the deity of Christ. Who being in the form of God, because if you look down at verse 7, he says, taking the form of a bondservant, they're parallel. So he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or he emptied himself. Well, how did he do that? Did he empty himself of all of his divine attributes, as some, has, some have erroneously said? No. How did Jesus empty himself? By taking, by means of taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul's point there is not that Jesus ceased to be God, but he was God, he continues to be God, but when he came, he took upon himself human flesh. And so his divine nature, as it were, was shrouded by a human body, and which had a human soul. And so we refer to Jesus now as the God-man, and, and by the way, the union of that body to the second person of the Godhead, we say is an inseparable union. He's in heaven at God's right hand right now as the God-man with the human body. And He's done that for our redemption. And that's something to think about. 
and meditate upon as well. And so just let that sink in. The incarnation. The Word became flesh. The second person of the Godhead, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who gave the prophets His Word, has come down off the mountain Malachi 3 to His temple and taken upon Himself the temple of His own body. As He would say in John chapter 2. And so then if you look at verse 14, John says, He dwelt among us. That is, He took up residence. And literally, this word is a verb, and it means to pitch one's tent. Does that make you think of anything in the Bible from a long time ago? The tents of the Old Testament that are all facing the tabernacle. In fact, we could, some have translated this verb, He tabernacled among us. And the language here is similar to Exodus 40, where it talks about this Shekinah glory, the presence of God, the symbolic presence of God, the cloud by day, the fire by night. And in Exodus 40, it says the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because of the cloud that rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the the tabernacle. So what is the significance of all of this? Tabernacling in the Old Testament, God coming down, being with His people. Well, that's it, isn't it? The great promise of the covenant of grace is Leviticus 26.12. I will walk among you, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. The presence of God, which was sacrificed in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. So that's the great fulfillment. So even in Revelation 21, 3, it talks about the end of all things, the new heavens and the new earth, heaven coming down to earth. It says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. After all, the name of Jesus is also Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. And so Christ here tabernacle for a while on this earth, we are told in John 2, 19, he refers to his own body as the temple. He says, you destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. And in Colossians 2 and verse 9, Paul says, for in him and Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And the result of this work of Christ, His redemption that He has accomplished for us after the incarnation, the result is now that we become His body, not that we are His literal body, but figuratively, we're the body of Christ, and in us now, the Holy Spirit dwells. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. And so John says, we beheld His glory. We saw Him. We beheld it, we digested it, we meditated upon it. And so the glory of God shone through the veil of His body. So there are points in the ministry of Christ where it was clear that He was God. He stated He was God. He proved that He was God. He had His miracles that He committed. 
Raising men from the dead. Of course, raising himself from the dead. And John says, we beheld His glory. We saw what others did not see or refused to see. And they saw it, of course, by faith. You know, Jesus elsewhere taught, and the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall see God. And John says here, this is the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the glory that could only come from such a one as this second person of the Godhead. It was clear to them as day that Jesus was, in fact, who He claimed to be. When was Jesus begotten? He says here, the, the only begotten was he begotten in time and space and time of the Father? No, it wasn't. I don't think he's talking about his messianic sonship. I think those are correct who talk about the eternal sonship of Christ. That he is the eternally begotten Son of God. Because after all, Jesus himself is God, and part of being God is being eternal. Now, if you can understand that, please come show me. I'm simply stating fact, what I believe is fact exegetically drawn out from the Scriptures and what has been the testimony of the true Christian church through the ages. And so He's the only begotten Son of God. But notice what else He says there in verse 14. Full of grace and truth. Now I want to come back to this. I think in verse 16 or so. Full of grace and truth. John's going to expound upon that. But Jesus comes... The second person of God had the Word of God. He took upon human flesh. And when He came, He came full of grace and truth. And we're going to see that's what we need. That's what all men need. You look at our nation today. You look at the mess and the foolishness that we've become, that we're in. We're in a mess. We've become fools because we've rejected God. What is it that we need? We need the grace of God. We need truth. We need His Word, which is the truth. I'm convinced, by the way, this is getting into the weeds perhaps a little bit, but I'm convinced the only hope for America is this thing called repentance. To confess our sins and to cry out unto God, to flee to Christ and walk in obedience to Him. That's the only hope we have. Not a program, not to finance more money and borrow from China and all this mess. No. Repentance is what we need. And so He's full of grace and truth. Uh, grace, God's kindness, His gift, His unmerited favor. And then truth, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life He is. And we'll see the fulfillment of all of the shadows and types and promises of the Old Testament. And so Jesus then, His glory, I should say, is revealed through the incarnation. And then second, quickly, we'll see here that the glory of the Word is revealed through the preeminence of Christ among men. That is, through His preeminence among men. That's there in verse 15. He says, Now John bore witness of Him, that is the Word, and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. 
You know, the letter to the Hebrews talks about the superiority of Christ. That Christ is far better than all these things of the Old Testament. Paul says that in Christ are all the promises of God. Yes and amen. All are in Him. Colossians 1.18 says that Christ must have preeminence in all things. He's the head over all. And here, this is the same message preached by John the Baptist, or as we saw last time, the baptized earth. Christ must have the preeminence. And so he's buried, he comes, John the Baptist comes bearing witness. And that's what he's called to do. Remember, that's what we were told in verse 7. He came for a witness, to be a witness, to bear a witness. And so that's what he's doing. And part of his message is that the one who comes after him is preferred before him. That is, he ranks higher in glory. He ranks higher in authority than me, John was saying. Now, why is that? If you look at it, it says, he was before me. Now, who was born first, John the Baptist or Jesus? Not by much, but John the Baptist was born first. And so in Hebrew culture, in their culture, it meant that he was the elder of the two in time, and therefore he would, in that sense, rank higher than him. He would be respected by Jesus in that sense. But John's ministry preceded Jesus' ministry. He was before me. And remember, there are those followers uh, after the uh, New Testament was given who claimed they were disciples of Jesus, but they claimed that John the Baptist uh, founded their church, and so they venerated John the Baptist inappropriately, inordinately. And so John hints at this as he writes in his prologue. He's like, no, Jesus is the one, not John. Even John was saying, Jesus is the one, not me, for he is before me. Hold your finger there and look at John chapter 8. Can't wait to get into this section. Um, In John chapter 8, Jesus engages the Pharisees, or perhaps they engage him. In verse 13, it says that the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. And so they're telling Jesus, you're a liar. And so then Jesus gives them about three or so direct statements of deity. Direct claims to being divine. And so in verse 24, he says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Look down at verse 27. It says, They did not understand that He spoke to them of the Father. Then verse 28, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. He's, of course, talking about His resurrection. And then if you look down at verse um, 56, they had pulled their pedigree card and claimed Abraham as their father. Therefore, they're okay because they're physical descendants of Abraham, right? Right? Well, if you look at verse 54, actually, Jesus said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. If it is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that He is your God, yet you have not known Him, but I know Him. And if I say I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do not know Him and keep His word. Verse 56. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. This is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. What God spoke to Abraham was about the one standing before them, this word incarnate, the Lord Jesus. Verse 57, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego Amy. That points back again to Exodus 3, where God tells Moses, Tell them, I am sent you. That's my name, I am. This is a claim to deity. Jesus is God in the flesh, standing there before the Pharisees. And so back in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist says he was before me, I think we see what he means. He existed before me, even though he was born after me. He is eternal. And so John would go on, the Baptist, and say, he must increase, I must decrease. And that is a glorious thing to see the preeminence of Christ among men. Is Christ preeminent in your life? That's the question this morning. Where is He on the pecking order of your heart? I struggle with idolatry. I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I know I've got letters behind my name, whatever. But I know my heart. And yet this one came to be first. To be preeminent in our hearts. So that's what we need to ask this morning. There's a second way though, speaking of that, um, His glory is seen through His incarnation. His glory is seen through His preeminence among men. And then third, His glory is seen through the glory of His grace. His grace. That's in verse 16 through 18. Verse 16 says, And of His fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law is given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Of His fullness, John says, we have all received. What is he talking about? His fullness. Well, that takes us back to verse 14 at the end. This word made flesh was full of what? Grace and truth. John and the other disciples, those who believed in Jesus, they received this fullness. They had taken hold of it. They obtained it, as we sometimes say today, they appropriated it. They did that by faith. And what was that fullness? Well, it says there in verse 16, it was grace for Grace. What is grace? It's a gift. We say sometimes it's unmerited favor, the unmerited favor of God. You know, in justice, there's a lot of talk about justice today, and uh, justice basically is getting what one deserves. In the Old Testament, it was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. 
if you were in an altercation, you punched someone in the mouth, they lost their tooth, guess what? Justice says you get to lose one of your teeth. If you gouged out another man's eye and it wasn't self-defense, you were in sin and all that, guess what justice says? You get to lose one of your eyes. And guess what? If you falsely accuse someone in the court of law in the Old Testament, it's found out that you, you falsely accused that person. Well, whatever the sentence was for that crime, you get to pay that sentence. And if that were applied in the courts today, I think there would be a lot fewer lawsuits and court cases. But that's justice. And justice, from God's perspective, His holy justice is good. But then there's mercy. Mercy is God withholding justice from us and applying His grace. And He did that at the cross. Because He poured out His justice on the Son of God so that we might get His mercy. Because God is just, He can't leave sin unpunished. He can't just say, not guilty, walk, walk and do your thing. His holiness and His justice demands that He punish sin. And He did that upon His Son. And so John says what that fullness is that they received. It was the fullness of grace and truth. And He says we get grace for grace. And that means that believers of Jesus Christ, Christians, constantly receive grace. Grace and the place of grace. In verse 14, it says, note, He is full of grace and truth. You know, this, this isn't the best analogy, but it's simple. So children, if you want to understand God's covenant of grace, well, I don't know if they have the ice cream truck, truck anymore. When I was a kid, you heard the bell ring and 50 kids would run out to the ice cream truck and it had all these goodies in there. So the ice cream truck is this vehicle by which all of these goodies and blessings are brought to you. You don't pay for them. Mom and Dad pay for them. Well, that's kind of like the covenant of grace. It's this vehicle by which the blessings and goodies of God come to us all by the payment of Jesus Christ Himself. The forgiveness of sins. Our adoption of sons and daughters. The fellowship of the saints. Eternity with God. And so, this covenant of grace brings God's unmerited favor to us. If you look at verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, on the one hand, it's undeniable there is a comparison here between what Jesus brings and what Moses brought. Jesus is the one greater than Moses. He is our Moses, our true Moses. He leads us into the promised land. Moses did not, by the way. He's one greater than Moses. But he's, he's not saying here that the law was works and falsehood. There's nothing wrong with God's law. The believer delights in the law and the inner man. Just as Paul did. But if you're honest, you know that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what the law can bring to you? If you want to use the law as you're standing before God, it can only bring a curse. Galatians 3 talks about it. Romans 3 talks about it. Romans 6, we've, we've seen this. 
But the law points to the one who is to come. Even in the Old Testament law, in Moses, the first five books of the Bible we have today, there are these types, these foreshadows, pointing to one who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those types and shadows. He is the embodiment of all that they represent. So there's the lamb that is shed. The different animals, their blood is shed. They are killed in the place of sinners, Leviticus 1. There's the tabernacle itself, which has the Shekinah glory, which symbolizes God's people coming together because of that shed blood. God, therefore, coming down, dwelling with His people, His presence with His people, now that the sins have been atoned for. There's those feasts in Leviticus where God's people come together and God feasts with them. We have fellowship with Him and with one another. It's only through Christ that this is possible. And John said, the Baptist, here He is. And John the Gospel writer says, we get grace upon grace from Him. He is the one full of grace and truth. The Old Testament is about Him. And this is glorious. Note as well, in verse 18 it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. How does this connect? And what's going on here? Well, in the original, it says that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. He had this close relationship to the Father. He had union with the Father. And no one has seen God at any time. We know that. Then he says, the only begotten Son of God, one who is close to the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. That word declared is quite interesting. The New American Standard says, explained. The Greek word, means to explain, to make fully known, and it's the word from which we get our word exegesis. Exegesis, you know. There's eisegesis. This is part of the interpretation of Scripture. Eisegesis, exegesis. If you just want to read into the Bible what you, you want it to say, you, you eisegete, you read into the text. But if you draw out what God says, you are drawing out what He says. That's exegesis. And we could say then that Jesus exegetes the Father. He explains and reveals the Father. He has declared Him. As Hebrew 1 puts it, you know, in chapter 1 and verse 1, it says in various ways, in various times, God revealed Himself through the prophets and through miracles and all these different ways. But then it says, in these last days, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds. That's what John's telling us right here in chapter 1, isn't he? And then, why? Why the crucifixion? Because we have to understand the incarnation was unto the crucifixion. 
I should ask, why the incarnation? The answer simply is Jesus took upon human flesh, a real human body and soul, so that He might die. So that He might live a perfectly righteous and sinless life in our place, and thereby be the Lamb without spot or blemish, and go to God's altar at Calvary, and bear the wrath and curse of sin that we deserve, hell on the cross for us, and die in our place. And so think about what John says here. He, he was in the bosom of the Father. And just before He died, in His humanity, Jesus cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? You know the answer to that? God the Father forsook His Son so that you could become His Son and His daughter. Is that not glorious? That should stir our minds and our hearts every time we think about it. And so do you see the glory of God this morning? I'm not asking if you see the heavens open and revealed. If they do, that means the second coming is upon us. Praise God. I'm saying, do you see Jesus? Have you beheld His glory as the disciples beheld Him? He's not standing right here before us. But we have Him on the pages of Holy Scripture. And as Paul has said, when we look into the mirror of His Word, we are transformed looking at the Lord from glory unto glory. And so as we continue in John's Gospel, John, the writer, will continue to reveal this wonderful Son to us. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've only scratched the the surface of the incarnation, the begottenness, the glory, of Your Son. We pray that You would transform us as we walk through these chapters in Your Gospel of John. And may You be glorified now and forevermore. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.